All right, thank you, Eddie and Marlene. Good morning, everybody. Um, before we start, one another quick announcement. Um, just walking in a little bit ago is the patriarch of Bible Baptist Church. It's her birthday, Miss Tina Abridge. Tina Abridge. Raise your hand, Tina. All right, so Tina, how, how many years have you been at Bible? How many years? Over 50. Wow. All right, so God bless. We'll celebrate later in the big room with her. Well, as we're going to continue our series in Ephesians, it's been, uh, it's been a great series, if you ask me. Um, God has shown us a lot. God has shown us how great he is, how incomprehensible he is, that he's beyond uh, measure, he's beyond finding out, and yet he is completely knowable. We see that God had a plan from the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created, he had a plan set forth in Christ that he would bring his people to himself. Paul now comes to his second prayer for the church in Ephesus. The title for today is A Prayer for Comprehension. Our text is Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. If you open your Bibles there in the Pew Bible, it's page number 977. So I would ask you to stand with me as I would pray and that we would read God's holy word. Father, as we come to you, we, we're leaning on you for understanding that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened as Paul had already prayed for the church in Ephesus, and as we pray for ourselves, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know what is ours in Christ Jesus, the glorious inheritance that is ours in the saints. And we pray today that as Paul prays for the church in Ephesus a second time, that we also would know the height, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Swear to the Lord, you may be seated. So what we're going to do today is more of an overview. I will be going on vacation for the next two weeks, which means you have vacation for the next two weeks. But when we come back, we're going to take a deep dive into this. Um, we're going to look very carefully at all that Paul is praying here. We want to make this our own prayers. We want this, these prayers for ourselves. We'll see three things today. We'll see posture, prayer, and praise. Posture, prayer, and praise. Posture. Paul begins this way. 
in, in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. But let's stop it for this reason. What does Paul mean? Of course we know for this reason refers back to what he has already been saying. He's looking back because of what I've just told you, that you are now fellow heirs and citizens in God's household. It's because of this reason I bow my knees. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this, pr- this prayer that he is now going to offer for these Ephesians arises because of their position as fellow citizens with the saints and as members of the household of God. Remember what he told them earlier. That the mystery of Christ was this in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, that's who they were. They weren't Jews, they were Gentiles, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He says it's for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. Bow is the word, kepto, it means to bend. And it is highly unusual for a Jewish man to bend his knees in prayer. Perhaps you've seen Jewish people in the airport. Perhaps if you stop on on the way up to upstate New York at the first rest stop on the thruway, perhaps you'll see the Jewish men standing there with their books and and they're, they're bowing like this. This is how they normally would be in prayer. When you go to Israel, if you stand at the wailing wall, they're, all, they're bowing like this. To bow with the knees is very unusual for a Jewish man to do. So we take note of the posture of Paul. We do, though, have some accounts of Jewish men kneeling in prayer in Scripture. Matter of fact, Paul himself kneels in Acts 20, 36, leaving the Ephesian elders as they knelt in prayer. He leaves uh, Tyre in Acts 21, 5. He kneels in prayer. We see that Peter in Acts 19, when Tabitha uh, died, that he goes into the room, he kneels and he prays for her to be resurrected. And of course, she's resurrected. We see that Solomon, when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, it says he knelt down and he prayed. And of course, the most famous person to pray on their knees is the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden. It's not necessarily about the posture, the outward posture. For God cares for far more about the inward posture than the outward posture. But there is something that drove Paul to his knees. There's something that drove Peter to his knees, that drove Solomon to his knees, Jesus to his knees. The weightiness of the occasion, the weightiness of the prayer would cause you to bend your knee before God. Because God cares more about the inward posture than the outward posture posture does not mean that we should ever be cavalier, casual in how we pray. If we're going to be honest today, prayer is probably the least attended to aspect of the Christian life. I know I need to pray more. Prayer, it's been said, is to the Christian, to what oxygen is to breathing. We must be prayerful people. We must be prayerful people. And we must not be casual about it. We are praying to the God of the universe. 
We're praying to God the Father. That's what Paul says. Perhaps it's just the sheer magnitude of whom you are speaking with that would cause you to fall on your knees. We, we all know the song, I can only imagine. I can only imagine what it will be like. Will I fall on my knees? Will I dance? Will I sing? Will I be able to speak at all? I think pretty much most of us are at the consensus, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to be on my knees. The sheer overwhelming glory of God can produce nothing else in you but to fall on your knees. And that's what Paul says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. We need to know who we're speaking to. We're speaking to the God of the universe. The incredible thing is that the God of the universe invites us to speak to Him. Invites us to speak to Him. What would you do if you were granted a meeting with a very important person? How would you react? What would you do? Would you make sure your hair was correct? Would you make sure you wore the right, you know? Would you pull out the iron? I, I do. I, on Sunday mornings, I'll pull out the iron. In other words, during the week, I could care less about wrinkles. But I do because of the occasion. We would make sure everything's right, but how often do we approach God and be like, you know, hey, God, it's another day, and I really need your help. And All right, got to go, God. You know everything about me. You know, you know, I thank you that I, you know everything. And then we just go on with our day. And yes, he does know everything. You understand what I'm saying? It's before the Father. And Paul says in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What does he mean by that? Does he mean all people? Everybody on earth is named after God. Somehow they all belong to God's family. Well, in a sense, that's true. I mean, what did Paul say when he was in Athens speaking with the philosophers? He told them this in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Is that what Paul is referring to? Well, some would probably say that. I would say that's not what Paul is referring to. I believe that Paul is referring to the totality of the redeemed, to God's people alone. Contextually, that's what fits. Contextually, that's what he's been talking about all along. God's special redeemed people. Those are the ones in whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Paul is just now again saying what he said before. Remember I told you when we started Ephesians, it's going to be a constant repeating of what he says in, in the opening of chapter 1. is just repeated over and over again in the book. And what did he say in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Remember Paul said in Athens, he made through one man, he made all men. Referring to Adam, Jesus, who is now the new Adam, is making one new man the redeemed of Christ. 
Paul says, because of who God is, I bow my knee. And this is the essence of Paul's prayer. He says that according, verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. He prays that out of the riches of God's glory, they would have all the blessings of being a citizen of God's kingdom. But what is God's glory? God's glory is the totality of His being, if you ask me. It's His holiness, His power, His beauty, His perfection. It's all that God is. And the riches of His glory. What are the riches of God's glory? The riches of God's glory are displayed to you and I in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the riches of God's glory. As Ian Hamilton says, we've come to love Ian Hamilton. I hope you have. I have. He says, all God's blessings come to us in Christ and are the overflow of His love for us. Paul prays that out of the riches of God's glory, they would be strengthened and they would be empowered. Look what it says in 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Strengthened. Become powerful, to be strong. That you'd be, become strong in power. It's a word we've already had, dunamis, achieving power. The ability to do something. He's already prayed this. What kind of power do we have? Resurrection power. In verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1, he says that having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, dunamis, towards us who believe, according to the working, the energy of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Resurrection power is ours. He says that out of God's riches of His glory, you would have this resurrection power. You'd be strengthened and you would be empowered. You would have strength to do what God has called you to do. He already said you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He has prepared beforehand. I pray that you would be strengthened with God's power to do this. That you would be strengthened with God's power through The Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Look again, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The same spirit, which he says gives wisdom and revelation, also gives us resurrection power. As he says again, let me read it for you again. Ephesians 1. Now in verses 17 to 20, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. You need power today? You need hope today? It is yours in Christ Jesus because it's immeasurable in its greatness what he gives to us. Immeasurable. You cannot fathom it. You cannot measure it. He prays that their inner being, that inside them, they would be strengthened by God's indwelling Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit that Christ dwells in you. Look what he says in 17. That Christ may dwell so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, dwell, kata iko, uh, oikio, actually. Oikos is the word, Greek word for house. Dwell means to settle in, to inhabit, to colonize. Oh, colonize, that's a bad word today, right? That brings back so many negative things. The woke culture doesn't like the word colonize, but don't you pray that the Holy Spirit would colonize your heart, that He would take up residence in you, right? That He would live inside of you. He prays that that Christ would be living in the hearts, which is the seat of the will and the emotions. As John Stott writes in his commentary, thus Paul prays to the Father, that Christ by His Spirit will be allowed to settle down in their hearts and from His throne there both control and strengthen them. Let me read that to you again. Thus Paul prays to the Father that Christ by His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will be allowed to settle down in their hearts and from His throne there both control and strengthen them. Does God control you? Does God strengthen you? Do we let God control and strengthen us? You may be asking yourself, why does he pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts? Aren't they already saved? If Christ dwells in your heart, that means if he doesn't dwell in your heart, he's praying that Christ would dwell in your heart, that means they don't know Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they would be empowered by the reality that they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He uses what John Stott says are botanical and architectural metaphors. Botanical and architectural metaphors. Look what it says again in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God. That you being rooted, botanical, and grounded, architectural, in love. Scripture uses both of these analogies. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. For what? He is like a tree rooted, planted by streams of water, Psalm 1. Paul had already used the analogy, the architectural analogy, of them being built into a a house of God with Christ as the chief cornerstone in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. He says, love is the goal of Christ dwelling in their hearts. 
the foundation of all that God does and has done for you and I is His love. The foundation of all that God has done and will continue to do for His redeemed children is His great, measurable love. As John Stott says again, love is to be the soil in which their life is to be rooted. Love is to be the foundation on which their life is built. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. But what love is he talking about? Is it that I'm supposed to love? The love that I have for each other? The love that I have for God? That's certainly part of it. But the the main point is, it's God's love for us. That we would be grounded in God's love for us. Do you really believe that God loves you? You may look at the world and you may look at your life and say, there's no way God loves me. How could God possibly? Look at this. This is horrible. Look what happened to me. Where was God when I needed him? Well, maybe the right question is ask, where were you when God was calling you? How often we expect God. We give nothing to God. Don't acknowledge God in any way, shape, or form. But all of a sudden, we want God to come through because God is love. All of a sudden, everybody's a great theologian. They know everything that the Scripture says about God. They actually know nothing. God will not. Let me not I should, I'm not going to say will not. God is not obligated to respond to anybody. He's not obligated to respond to anybody. He doesn't need us. We need Him. And because of his love, he responds to people. And sometimes he even responds to the pagan. But you can be sure of this. If you're God's child, he always responds to you. You just might not like the way he responds. But he responds in love. He responds in the way that is absolutely the best for you and I. Because God sees the end. I see what's right here. You and I see what's in front of me. God sees the end. He says, now this is the best way. I love you, so I'm going to give you this and not this. I'm going to let this continue. I'm not going to let it stop because this is best for you. And that's where faith comes in. We have to trust that God loves you, loves me, and knows better than I. And that God really does work out all things according to his plan for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I have to believe that God loves me, even when it seems so hard, even when it seems I can't go on. Know that God loves you. If a mother can forsake her child, says the Lord, I will not forsake you. See, I have engraved you on my palms. So great is God's love for us. We can only truly love God and one another, as we are rooted and grounded in God's love in Christ. That's what Ian Hamilton says in his commentary. And that is true. I can't really love you. and You can't really love me. Unless we're first individually grounded in the love of Christ. He prays that out of this, 
being rooted and grounded in love, of God's love for them, that they would be able to comprehend the fullness of God's love. That you may be, that you may have strength to comprehend, verses 18 and 19, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The word comprehend is katalambano. It means to seize, to lay hold of, to acquire, obtain through effort. Obtain through effort. How do I obtain? How do I comprehend the love of God through effort by my study of God's Word. That's it. It takes effort. I wish God would just, you know, pop your lid back, pour the knowledge in and close it, and you'd be good. It doesn't happen that way. It says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Notice how he says, with the saints. My personal study matters to the body of Christ. Your personal study matters to the body of Christ because your personal study is not just for you. It is meant to come back to the body, and you share what God has shown you. God's, you. You may have something God has given you that somebody says, you know, I'm struggling with this and that, and God has taught you a verse, and you say, you know what? I've just been studying that, and God showed me, and boom, you're able to share. We are to strengthen one another. I study individually. I do my own personal devotion, but it's just not my own little personal world. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We are to be a body. Paul has been emphasizing you are a body. You are one. You are building into one house, one race, the redeemed. You know, that's the only race that's going to stand in the end. Everybody else is going to be gone, but God's redeemed will live forever. He says, we are to study together. Listen to again what John Stott says. He says, the isolated Christian can indeed know something of the love of Jesus. But his grasp of it is bound to be limited by his limited experience. It needs the whole people of God to understand. The whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews and Gentile, men and women, young and old, black and white, with their varied backgrounds and experiences. It takes a church. To know the love of God. It takes a church to encourage one another in the love of God. To go on. To press deeper and deeper. And so when we isolate ourselves from one another. When you come just on Sunday and we never see you again. You're hurting yourself and you're hurting God's church. That's why Paul prays that they would be built into the family of God. As they comprehend the vast love of God. The vast love of God. We sing the song, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. 
that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. The vast love of God. That's what he says. Look again what it says in verses 18 to 19. You may be strength, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, height, and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Again, as John Stott says, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, which is the theme of these chapters, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. I love that. He prays that as they comprehend the vastness of God's love, that it would know, it would result in knowing God's love which passes understanding. Again, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that he may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of God cannot be fully known. It doesn't mean it can't be known. It can't be fully plumbed, the depth of those. God's love is as deep as He is. Who is God? God is love. Let's try it again. God is love. He is. His being is love. Right? And the Lord passed before Him and said, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Bounding in it. It's who God is. It's His nature, His essence. It's the seed of all that He is. His holiness, His love, His justice, His, His all of that. God's move in history towards you and I in love. It's this love of God, He says, that surpasses human knowledge. It's also what guards our hearts and minds with the peace of God, as he says to the church in Philippi. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, if we understand and are rooted and grounded in the love of God and know that God loves me, and all the promises of God in His Word are for me, are yes and amen in Christ. And he says, I hold you in my hand. No one's going to take it from, no one's going to take it out of my hand. You are secure here. I've overcome the world. And as I know the love of God, it's going to give me a peace that will surpass all understanding. And no wonder Paul could say, I've learned to be content in all things because I know God loves me and he hasn't given up on me, nor will he ever, nor can God give up on me. Because God made a promise. The Bible says he swore by his own self. It is impossible for God to lie. He loves you. He really, really loves you. He's not praying that this this understanding, this comprehension of God's love would just be intellectual. He's praying that it would be experiential for them. They would really experience the love of God. And as they do, that they themselves would be filled with God himself. Look again what he says in 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does he mean by being filled with all the fullness of God? Doesn't that sound like somebody from TBN talking right now? Didn't he just tell us that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit? If Christ is already in you, how can you have more God in you? What he means is that we as God's children, if we're rooted and grounded in the love of God, we're not to be static. We're not just to be, you know, just level off. We're to be growing. We're to be moving forward in our love and our knowledge of God. I mean, if it's immeasurable, if it's there's more to know and more to grow, then don't stop knowing and growing, he says. We're to be ever growing in our knowledge from precept to precept, as the scripture would say. That we would grow in our knowledge of him. As Peter would say, that you would add to these things, add to your love knowledge, the knowledge faithfulness and all that, that you would add, you would continue to grow. How many of us have stopped growing in the fact that we were told if you said a prayer, if you just asked Jesus into your heart, you're good for eternity. Go on with life. How dangerous that false teaching is. Because it's not true. You don't just say a prayer and you're good to go. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and it propels you into a relationship. That's what he means by being filled with the fullness of God. That we would know his love for us, which is inexhaustible. And as we grow in that knowledge of God and his vast love, that we ourselves become more Christ-like in character. That's God's purpose for us anyways. He already told us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand. As our friend Alistair Begg would tell us, are we making a wee bit of progress? Are we just going for, you know, we, we, you know, I have to make leaps and bounds in my growth. No. The journey of a thousand miles begins with what? A single step. And I take another step. And God's word illumines my path so that what? It's a light onto my feet. And I take a step. And I go forward and I take a step. And sometimes I go, I go three steps back. And then I go. And as the old country song would say, three steps forward, two steps back. Nobody gets too far like that. We want to be growing. We want to keep going forward. Press on, the scriptures would tell us. That's what Paul is saying, that you would comprehend what this is. Loved ones, are we pressing on? Are we moving forward? We have no idea of suffering in our church, in the American church at least. We have no idea of what it means to suffer for the name of Christ. But if we're not rooted and grounded now, if we're not determined that this is true, and I am willing to literally die for this because I know it's true, when real persecution comes, you know what you're going to do? I'm out. Eh, it was nice for a while. Let me move on to greener pastures. Why do I want to complicate my life? Why do I want to make things harder for myself? You know, it's no big deal. Just, 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 you know, just acquiesce to the culture. Just keep it, you know, okay, yeah, you're right. And I have my own little private world. It didn't work for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, no way. Yeah, what's the big deal? What's the big deal just bowing down? 
What's the big deal about compromising? It's no big deal. It is to God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood firm. You know the story. And God saved them out of the fire. You know what, though? God may not save you or I out of the fire. And that's okay. Because their perspective was right. What did they say to King Nebuchadnezzar? Whether he does or not is inconsequential to us. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. Because I know in whom I have believed, and he is able to save me unto that day. What day? The day that Christ returns. The day that Christ returns. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. Is it your prayer for yourself? Is it my prayer for me? May it be ours. And Paul, in praying for all of these incredible truths for the church, ends with praise. He ends with praise. Ian Hamilton says this. I love this. I absolutely love this. You should print this out and put it on your wall. It's not, it's not greater than Scripture, but it's, it's up there. It says, doxology is the first resting place of true theology. Where doxology is absent, true theology can hardly be present. Doxology, that's praise, glory, is the first resting place of true theology. Where doxology is absent, true theology can hardly be present. I'm just going to sidetrack for just a second. You know, that's why the worship music you listen to is just absolutely so important. We are very purposeful here. And I don't mean that to say, because Scripture tells us to be purposeful. You sing songs that glorify Christ. You sing songs that point to the truths of Scripture. Caleb is nice, don't get me, you know. It's not my, it's not my go-to, I can tell you that. You may like Caleb and it may help, but I'm going to tell you, There's much better stuff out there. There's much better stuff out there. What you listen to really does matter. Don't think that it's just in the background, it's nice, and, you know, that stuff goes in, whether we like it or not. That stuff goes in. Sing truths about God. Sing truths that extol who God is. I'll give you a challenge. 92.7 Family Radio. Now, it's not the family rate of Harold Camping. He's long gone, thank God. Um, it's sad, actually, to say that. But I'm going to tell you, it may not be your style of music. But I promise you, if you, really, it, you will benefit if you just let the words. Let the words come in. That's my sidetrack. I have to say, as Paul said... I, Eric, not the Lord, say this, so that's just me. But Paul ends in praise, in doxology. Listen to what he says, we know it well. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. out of Paul contemplating what he says from chapter 1 
all his prayers, all his teachings about who God is, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us. That does not mean he's going to do. You can do more than you can think or ask in Christ Jesus. That's what heretics will tell you. What he's saying is God is going to do more than you can think or ask. In other words, God is going to blow you away every single time with his great love with this great power, when God comes through and when God shows up and you say, I'm still waiting for him, I can promise you this one day, Jesus Christ is going to show up physically. He's going to return. And every tear will be wiped away. And the eternal weight of glory will be better than our present sufferings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. We ask, Lord God, that you help us to be rooted and grounded in love and that we would know the power and the strength of God in us to know that love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, it's Communion Sunday. We remember the Lord through the elements of of bread and, and, well, grape juice.